Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, listeners. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team. Today, I am sitting down with James Hom Matson author of Reprieve, which is coming October 5th. Uh, just some background on James. Uh, he is the acclaimed author of The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves, a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. He is the, he is the recipient of awards from the Copernicus Society of America and Humanities North Dakota. He was a featured storyteller on The Moth and has taught writing at the University of Iowa, the University of Cape Town, George Washington University, the University of Maryland, Murray State University, and the University of California, Berkeley. He is currently the fiction editor of Hyphen Magazine. Uh, James was born in Seoul, Korea, and raised in North Dakota. So thank you again, James, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, you know, this is a really unique and fascinating story, you know, part horror, part social critique. And the raves are just numerous. I mean, there's quotes from Kiese Lehman, Ramon Alam, Steph Cha, amongst many others. It did, did just receive a starred booklist review. They say, Matson presents a brilliant hybrid, a thought-provoking look at marginalization and the systemic oppression expertly nestled inside a high-anxiety tale about the horror industry itself. Not too shabby, James. So congrats on that. I think uh, just a great way to get this started would be if you don't mind introducing listeners to the story of Reprieve. Sure. Reprieve is a story of a murder that takes place in a full contact haunted escape room attraction in Lincoln, Nebraska. The haunt is called the Quigley House. And if it contestants make it through six cells without saying the safe word, which is reprieve, uh, they can win a pretty big cash prize. My book shows the life trajectories that led the characters to the house on that fateful night. So that's kind of the bulk of the, the plot. I should say that the book isn't like straight up blood and guts horror. It's much more character focused. Uh, and the themes that do emerge aren't, aren't light themes. Uh, I sort of used the horror genre more as a way to illuminate things like racial fetishism and hate politics and misogyny. So if you're looking for just like an all out blood and guts, like unrelenting <laughs> scare fest, that's not this book. But there is stuff in there that, that should make you unsettled, hopefully. Oh, there is. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and you're right. I mean, there's so much happening in this book and it is more than a horror story, but it is using a lot of those tropes and really directly confronts the history of the horror genre as a whole. And we'll get a little bit more into that. But if you wouldn't mind talking about your own backstory and how it inspired Reprieve, I know you wrote a behind the book essay, which listeners, you can find on Edelweiss. And I thought that was really eye-opening. And I think listeners would be really fascinated by that. 
Yeah. Well, when I started Reprieve, I wanted to write a book about racial fetishism. I mean, to be honest, when I started this book, I didn't know that it was going to take the horror turn that it did. Um, I began the book mostly in Thailand. I mean, it was like, it was almost going to be all in Thailand. And then I kind of grew obsessed with these full contact haunted attractions because I didn't really know anything about them. And so Reprieve kind of came from all that. But like, as far as my own backstory, I mean, racial fetishism was just something uh, that I and many of my friends had experienced. um, And I really hadn't read much about it, particularly in fiction. And so, I mean, I guess a lot of it had to do with navigating the world, uh, n- navigating the world of dating, I guess, as a non-white person and realizing quite early on that the rules were a bit different and that love uh, could often take on more complicated dimensions uh, because of systemic power structures. And that's something a lot of us don't want to talk about because we just think of love as this like hazy nebulous thing that just happens and there's a spark and there's chemistry and that's what love is. But if you actually examine love and you examine how love has like, you know, happened throughout the ages and in particular in this country, you see like there's this pattern that emerges that it can be very uncomfortable, you know, it can be a little bit uncomfortable to talk about. I'm not saying that you don't still get like fluttery feelings and you don't still have those kind of amazing feelings of love. But I think if we're, uh, I don't think we should uh, stray away from like thinking that love can be something that is worthy of uh, examination on this bigger scale. Yeah, and it is such a large scale topic, but you know, with these characters that you write, I mean, I, I think of Leonard, of course, comes to mind immediately when we're talking about, you know, the sex trade and, and yeah. the sex travel industry. You know, there's a lot there. And I do think distilling it into these very specific characters in this time and place really drives home those points. So, and and I know you mentioned, you know, you didn't come to horror just by default. You didn't set out to write a horror novel. Uh, I mentioned this is the your second novel following the lost prayers of Ricky Graves. So what was it like, you know, once you kind of started finding that horror was going to be woven throughout the story, was the writing experience vastly different from your debut novel? I mean, what was that like for you? Um, Yeah, I mean, the writing experience was vastly different from my debut. I mean, the first wasn't I mean, there was nothing horror about it. I mean, it was about a kid. I mean, it, the the thing that happens in the book is pretty horrific, um, but it's not rooted in the genre of horror. And just the writing itself was just so different. I mean, the first one was all just a bunch of first person voices. So it kind of required me to tap into those voices for hours at a time and just go with it. It required a lot less research than this book. And to be quite frank, it was often a lot easier to write than this book. This one was uh, much more of a bear. It was much more of a challenge to write. It took a lot more time. It took, I mean, the plot is more intricate. There are many times where I just had to, you know, step outside of my uh, writerly comfort zone, so to speak. That's not to say it wasn't fun writing it. And the research was kind of a blast, but the labor required was uh, significantly more intensive. I think that's really fascinating. Would you mind you know, I, I'm curious about the research. What what did that involve for you? Right. So the research took place on two fronts. There is the Thailand front, and then there is the full contact haunted escape room front. For Thailand, you know, I, I went to Thailand. I talked to a lot of people. I mean, I joined forums. 
Um, it was all very unsettling. I mean, like I had to like kind of become sort of entrenched in the, uh, you know, the sex trade, the sex tourism trade in Thailand. And it's, it's just a very, it's just a very unsettling experience to, to like, you know, kind of figure out and realize what goes on with all of that. So I did all that. That's, that was part of the research. And then the other part of the research was, was these full contact haunted escape rooms or haunted attractions, which I, like I said before, I knew nothing about. I didn't even know they existed. It was basically me going through uh, YouTube one day and like finding a little, uh, a little, you know, suggestion saying you should, you should watch this. And I, you know, I watched it and I was horrified and I couldn't believe this actually existed. And so of course I become obsessed with it. And I, wound up talking to some people that like were part of this industry. And uh, I was like, okay, this is, this is, this, I'm going to write this story. I'm going to write a story about a full contact place. Um, I also worked for a couple summers for these guys. They had a winery. This is in Southern Maryland. They had a winery. And so I worked in their tasting room, but they also uh, had haunts. They had a haunt I think in Silver Spring, uh, that was defunct. Um, but they were building a new haunt in Southern Maryland, pretty close to the winery. So they gave me a lot of tips on like what goes into starting one of these things. It wasn't a full contact haunt. It was just a regular old haunt, but it was like <laughs> really interesting to, to see like, uh, the behind the scenes type stuff in that. Yeah. Wow. Down the rabbit hole for sure with that. But yeah. I guess that's really what you have to do to really, you know, make this story real. And it does just, you know, both, you know, the, the various threads are just, they just read so genuine and impressing and, and uh, important, I guess. And, and speaking of the writing, I'm just going to read a quick passage from this book because, you know, we talked about cultural tension and each of the central characters in this book that the story, the story is primarily told through, you have Kendra Brown, Leonard Granton, and J.D. Cherawansuk. So you have these three primary characters, and there's this passage from J.D. that I particularly found pressing. It says, so J.D. threw his orange Julius cup away, wandered down the east spoke of the mall, and stopped outside a shoe store containing a poster of a very ordinary-looking blue sneaker. The words below the shoe read, be different. He thought about this. What did it mean exactly to be different? Didn't the company want people to buy this blue shoe? And if everybody bought this blue shoe, how would they be different? It seemed like a major problem in America. It's hypocrisy. The only way to be truly individual was to conform as rigidly as possible. So, you know, this a lot of this book does, you know, confront these conflicting ideas of like American individualism and consumerism and fetish, you know, the fetishization of cultures could you talk about that? Like, you know, all these things, all these strings, how are you, how did you approach that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I love that you pulled that quote. Cause that's like one of my, one of the, that was one of the favorite, my favorite scenes to write um, was JD walking through the mall and seeing this poster of a shoe <laughs> that says be different. You know, I thought that it was just, it was, it, it allowed me to talk about things that you know, I like to talk about. And one of those things is just American hypocrisies. I think there's this dual fanaticism in America with both, both individuality and conformity. And I think leaning too far one way or the other is almost, is always considered bad. Uh, but what's so interesting is that it's just all hypocrisy. So like, if you take fashion, for instance, 
Uh, we want to be fashionable, so we're unique, or at least that's what the media tells us. But if we adhere to what's in fashion, then we're conforming because in fashion itself mandates that we prescribe a certain coolness factor to certain widespread looks, right? So while we think wearing what's in fashion makes us unique, it's actually the opposite. And it's, um, I mean, I think about this, this, this push and pull all the time. For example, there's, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. There, I used to work at this restaurant I remember one waitress uh, was re- was really feeling sorry for this guy who came in uh, to eat by himself all the time. And she was just like, oh, he just, you know, she was basically saying, oh, he must leave, lead like this really sad life. He's always eating by himself. And I'm like, why would you think that? Why would you think that because he's eating alone, he has a sad life? Like, I mean, first of all, who cares? But then I thought about it in a more in a broader scale. And I thought, like, for a country that's so obsessed with individual independence, doing things that are considered very independent, like eating by yourself, are met with this weird judgment. It's like it's bizarre. And it's really amazing, uh, really, to hear um, like foreign voices take on this American strangeness. So like in college, I had a lot of uh, international students and they would remark on these American hypocrisies. And I would always like find them amazing, find them like stunningly interesting and astute. Yeah, it it, it is fascinating, you know, and of course, JD is dealing with this throughout the story while simultaneously trying to fit in to painful degrees of success and failure. And he's pressed on that. But I, yeah, I mean that, I think, like you said, it's this, it's this kind of conflicting vision of ourselves it really doesn't make sense it's it is it's hypocrisy and i yeah i just love that i loved that passage and of course the orange julius just brings yeah. you to that specific <laughs> time and place um and, and speaking of time and place so this is set in 1997 lincoln nebraska so yeah. i just wanted to ask if there's a particular importance of this time and place and do you think this story could have been set anywhere else or specifically in a different country well, a big part of it is set in Thailand, but if we're talking about like the, just the, um, the Quigley house stuff, well, I, I mean, I guess we could talk about the time first. I think the nineties were sort of an interesting decade for horror. It was like an in-between like transitional time. Like you had like the big slashers of the eighties and then you have like and in the in the aughts, you had like the found footage and kind of gross out torture porn. But like in the 90s, you had sort of a hodgepodge of like sort of thoughtful horror, as well as more of the bubblegum stuff like Scream. So I thought it, I mean, it'd be a good time to set a book about horror in the 90s. As far as the place, Lincoln, I mean, I lived in Lincoln for four years. I don't think the town itself is at all ominous, but Nebraska I think is just a spooky state. I mean, there's a reason Children of the Corn was set there. I mean, it's just I, and and the Quigley House is outside of outside of Lincoln, so it's in that it's in that kind of cornfield spookiness. So yeah, I, I like that it's set in that time and place. <laughs> yeah, I think it totally works. And, and, and you're right. We'd be remiss not to mention that uh, you know a good portion of this book does take place in Thailand. And that kind of brings me to my next question, because the story is primarily told through partially court transcripts as they're working through that fateful night and the murder that took place within the Quigley house. Uh, And then you have three primary characters. You have Kenda Brown, 
who's new to the area. She's a teenager. She's isolated. She's one of the few Black teenagers in the area. You have Leonard Granton, who is this man who's a hotel manager who is disgruntled and psychologically somewhat, um, what's the word we can use for Leonard? He's, he's, um, he, he's suffering turmoil in his personal life. And then you have JD, who is uh, the, the exchange student. Um, and again, Leonard's storyline does take place partially in Thailand. So they're also different. And Leonard in particular, I found so horrifying, but really like astutely written and believable at the same time. So I'm just curious how it was, what, what your experience was like writing these characters and if you found any one of them particularly challenging or terrifying to write. As challenging, yes. I mean, I think Kendra was a challenge to write. I will say this though, Kendra ended up being, you know, one of my favorite characters. She was challenging simply because her experiences was were so different from mine. It was like I, I I've never been any of these characters, you know, none of these characters like reflect my own biography. Um, but character, but Kendra's was was more distant, you know. Um, you know, she's a uh, a black teenage girl who grew up in Washington D.C. You know that's that's very different from a gay Asian boy who grew up in North Dakota. You know, so I. But actually, K- Kendra's character didn't come to fruition like until like the third draft or something. She was like a minor character before, and I really loved her character. So I decided she needed to take center stage. And so I had to rework her and rework her and rework her until I finally got what I wanted. And hopefully the reader will appreciate everything she goes through in the book. Leonard, you know, you mentioned him and, you know, Leonard was not difficult to write. I think uh, in my life, I've known a lot of Leonard's, you know, a lot. He's desperate. He's entitled, you know, in, in capturing that sort of, mentality was not particularly hard, I guess. But I mean, I suppose, I don't know what that says about me, the fact that I can like enter that, <laughs> like really pretty easily. I don't know. I, yeah, Leonard is is horrific in, the, in that he's so ubiquitous, <laughs> you know, so like, you know, he's everywhere. And like, a lot of times you don't know that this is a Leonard until, you know, you spend some time with them. And um, and because Leonard at the beginning of the book, I don't think he's all that unsympathetic, but you just, you just like sort of like touch at the an insecurity. And then like, you know, this, this flame arises or whatever, and then things get all messed up, you know? Yeah. He's tragic in that way. Cause you do feel at the beginning of the book where things could go a different way. You know, yeah. there might be some predisposition towards this really toxic, you know, thinking, but you know, it, it is like, he just, he, he, he succumbs to the wrong voices and right. you know, it's more common than not. So yeah, I thought that was, it was really fascinating. Um, you know, and, and this is, you know, some of the big topics, I guess. So you reference in this book several times, characters mentioned, you know, the horror genre and its history with black characters, black bodies, people of color, and how they're often, you know, in like, you know, the, the stereotype is that oftentimes the black character is the first to die in a horror film. And oftentimes, you know, they're not fully developed characters, they're not given humanity. What we find out in Reprieve is Kendra's cousin Brian, who is a young black man in college, is murdered in the Quigley house. 
with the way you do it here, it's obviously so impactful, obviously to Kendra first and foremost, but he's such a developed character. What, how hard was it to make that narrative decision with Brian and, and to kind of confront those issues in the horror genre? Well, Kendra's character and Kendra's family, like I said before, came later in the drafting process. So Brian's character also came later in the drafting process. Uh, originally, I was focused more on JD and Leonard, but as soon as Kendra entered the picture, uh, as soon as I knew she was going to be like take up a lot of space in the book, I knew that the story was going to have elements of complicity um, about how the desire to be closer to power um, without really even know you desire that that uh, closeness can result in becoming an accessory to the powerful's many horrors, I guess, um, inflicted on marginalized groups. So no, it wasn't difficult once Kendra and Brian crystallized into main characters. Once that happened, I, you know, I knew that this like tragedy was going to happen because that's how the story was playing out just by having Kendra and Brian now uh, major characters in the, in the story. And I, you know, I just want to mention something about the last question we were talking about as far as viewpoints, because funny enough, when I had interviewed Ramon Alam, he's an author who people always press into like, oh, how do you write female characters so well? And what he always, you know, pushes back on is that's the job of an author and a writer is to right. inhabit these characters that aren't so much like ourselves or nothing, you know, you might have nothing in common with a character, but you're a writer and a very talented writer. So that's, it comes as no surprise that you were able to bring these characters so vividly to life, but they are, they're just, they're fascinating. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that. And then let's see, one person we haven't really talked about very much that I just want to touch upon very briefly is John, the enigmatic owner of the Quigley house. And, you know, he, he's not, he appears and disappears throughout the story, but he had like his choices have these huge reverberations through the story what were you thinking with him? Like, what 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 was the process for creating this character and his his ultimate motives in the story? John is John is concerned with money and business. You know, I think he dislikes any sort of disruption to the, any that upward trajectory. You know, and he's done really well for himself with the Quigley House. I think some might think he's sadistic just because of the venture that he's he's um, doing, uh, but I wouldn't put him in that camp. I never thought of John as sadistic. I would say he's a lot more uncaring and just narcissistic. I mean, I don't think he, ta- he gets any joy in seeing people suffer. I just think it's just like people suffer and I make money, so that's fine, you know, but I don't get like some, I don't get high off of it or anything. Um, he's willing to put people in jeopardy for his own gain, and that's you know, that's essentially what happens in, in the story. You know, he's, he's a tough character. I mean, he was tough to write. I mean, he was, he's just slimy, (laughs) but. He's enigmatic. So yeah, I I thought he was really interesting. Um, And I'm excited readers for you to uh, discover what he does and doesn't do. and, and, And what we're talking about a little further, just to close things out, James. I would like to talk a little bit more just about works that inspired you, maybe horror, maybe not, but if there's anything in literature or film or television that you feel are confronting similar issues to Reprieve that maybe inspired the book, 
Um, just anything you'd recommend to readers to further the conversation? Well, of course, I'd recommend Get Out, Jordan Peele. I mean, uh, I thought it was superb. I think American Horror Story sometimes tries to broach heavier topics, but I found that it's a bit too heavy handed with that sometimes. And it does seem that the topics revolve mainly around sexuality, which is good, I think, but um, maybe a little bit limiting. But I, I, it's something that, you know, especially the first couple seasons of American Horror Story, I thought were pretty brilliant. There's a horror author named uh, A.C. Wise, who I think is absolutely stunning. She's wonderful and like I certainly uses her stories to convey broader messages. As far as like other books, I mean, I read Megan Giddings Lakewood, which I thought was just a really eerie trip. Uh, definitely provocative as well. I think, you know, Attica Locke writes kind of similar things. We mentioned Rahman Alam. I, again, I thought that was very eerie um, and that eeriness kind of enhanced the themes that emerged. So yeah, I think those are some some like contemporary things that I would, I would recommend. I mean, like I, uh, you know, I haven't read a whole lot of horror lately. So, you know, I, it's, you can get horror from almost anything you read, but like, uh, I don't think, I haven't like gone out and read a whole lot of, um, you know, horror that's in, that's categorized as, as such, I guess, lately. And to be fair, you could, and I hope you all will first read Reprieve and even within the pages of Reprieve, I mean, if, if we're talking about Kendra, who's a huge horror film buff, yeah. you will get, you will get ideas from that as well, just for straight horror. But I, I think Reprieve is a fantastic place to start, um, whether you're, you are looking for insights into, you know, cultural critiques or into the horror genre. It's doing so much and it's doing it so well. And uh, it's an amazing accomplishment. So I just want to congratulate you, James, for oh, Reprieve. Um, it's coming October 5th. Librarians, you can find the eGalley now on Edelweiss or NetGalley. Read it. Let us know what you think. And again, James, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.